Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10, if you would, just for a moment before you stand. Let me just remind you where we're at. Pastor mentioned that Brother John introduced a new series that our pastors will team preach together. We've called it Bridge Builders. And the goal of this series is to help you and I find ways to develop relationships with one another and even relationships outside of the borders of, of this room that span the differences. And the reality is that there's a chasm uh, between people that exists. It's, it's a deep divide that keeps us from having intimate or deep relationships with one another. Don't you know today we, we divide over all sorts of issues, right? Could be political issues. Um, could be uh, a race, religion, values. Rather than embracing the schisms, the Word of God instructs us that we can and we should be people that build bridges, uh, that knock down barriers. And we can and should be the kind of people who fight for unity and to love others because of our connection with and our example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Brother John communicated last week that bridge building really begins with an attitude and a spirit of forgiveness. And don't you know that any good relationship exists because of two really great forgivers? I once heard a man mention about what makes a great marriage, and he said a great marriage consists of two great forgivers. And the reality is there's going to be people in your life that hurt you, offend you, mistreat you, talk about you behind your back, do all sorts of things that you would otherwise not have them do. But you have a God-given responsibility, and so do I, to forgive that person. Because here it is, when we understand and comprehend all that we've been forgiven of, well then it's all the more easy to forgive others. And so tonight we're going to consider another thought as we consider building bridges. And if you're in Luke chapter 10, I want to encourage you to stand and honor God's word if you're physically able. As we look to Luke chapter 10, a very familiar story, a very familiar passage. But let me just encourage you before we dive in, before we read, not to allow the familiarity of the text to take away from what God may be trying to speak to your heart about tonight. And uh, I tell the young people all the time that anytime we open up the Word of God, this is amazing. God is trying to speak to us. And uh, let's not squander that or take that for granted, all right? Luke chapter 10, and I want to ask you to turn your attention to verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, this is Jesus, said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him. Notice he went to him and bound up his wounds pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave, him, gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Now Jesus turns to that lawyer and he says, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? 
And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, and don't miss this, go and do thou likewise. Go and do thou likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in the storms. And Lord, we're so thankful that we get to serve you. What a privilege, what a blessing, what an honor. I pray that we'd never take for granted your promises, your blessings, this, even this moment that we have together. Lord, I pray that in this moment we would choose to have a heart that's inclined to your word. Lord, that we'd open our ears, open our hearts to what your Holy Spirit may have for us. And uh, Lord, may you use this time to be a help, genuinely be a help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. <clears throat> have you ever had one of your children ask you a question that just stumped you before? You know, the kind of question that leaves you perplexed, confused, maybe some of us dads irritated, frustrated, right? My children have never, ever done a thing like that before. I've got perfect kids, right, Katie? No, not at all. Okay, my kids do this kind of thing all the time. In fact, my seven-year-old daughter, Audrey, in her first grade Sunday school class with Miss Starr not too long ago, asked the question in class that from my version of the story stumped Mrs. Starr. And my seven-year-old daughter asked her, Mrs. Starr, does God love Satan? This was a question that perhaps Mrs. Starr wasn't, you know, thinking would come her way. She wasn't ready in that moment. And so I believe she answered something to the effect of, you know, Audrey, that's a good question. Let's revisit that, you know, because we're talking about this today. Well, she, I guess, was trying to find me, and I was hiding because I knew the situation. No, I'm just kidding. I wasn't hiding. <laughs> but she found Brother Daniel and said, Brother Daniel, what would you have said? And Brother Daniel said, you know what, Mrs. Starr, I'm going to leave that to you, you know? <laughs> and then as I came down from Super Church that morning, and I'm in the office, Brother Daniel says, you will not believe what Audrey asked Mrs. Starr today. And I said, oh, great. What did, what did she say this time, you know? And so he told me what she said, and I'm like, oh, man, what did you say? And he's like, I told Mrs. Starr it's her problem, you know, and now it's yours. And I'm like, oh, man. So I had that registered, like, okay, that happened. And I didn't talk to Audrey about it the whole day. Well, later that week, we were eating a meal, and she brought it up when I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't ready for it. I hadn't thought about it long enough to think about a good answer. And so in that moment, I was just, you could say, stumped. I was perplexed. I was like... Why are you even asking? Why are you asking me these questions, right? Why does it matter? And we find here in our passage of Scripture that a certain lawyer stood up, the Bible says, and asked Jesus a question that he hoped would stump him, that he hoped would, at this time, his goal was to tempt Jesus, to cause Jesus to stumble, to get Jesus caught in a difficult situation where he might provide the wrong answer. Now, this lawyer was not like a lawyer in our modern day and time who would practice law or, or, or study some sort of law. A lawyer in that day would have been an expert in the Old Testament law, the Torah. And so he's trying to trip Jesus up on his words. And he, he stands up, the Bible says, and he tempts him. And how many, before I go on, know that regardless of what his attempt was, it was futile. Because you can't trip up the Lord Jesus Christ in any kind of way, right? But he's trying to get him to stumble. He's trying to get him to say something that he'd regret. He's trying to get him to contradict the law. And notice what he says in verse 25. He says, what shall I do 
to inherit eternal life. So obviously this lawyer, this really smart religious person, he's focused on actions, he's focused on doing, and since his question is action-centered, Jesus turns the question back into a question in his response, and it's an action-centered response. And how many of you know that the question that he asked was already wrong? Because you don't do anything to earn or inherit eternal life, you trust in somebody who's done everything for you, right? And so he asks this, what shall I do? And Jesus points him to the law. He says, what's written in the law? I mean, you know what the law says. You're a lawyer. You're an expert. What do you read about it? In other words, how do you understand the law to be answering your question? Well, this lawyer gives a really good answer. In fact, he quotes part of what the Jews would know as the Shema, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, that they would have learned as young men and and young ladies growing up in a Jewish religion, orthodoxy. And, And he also even quoted part of the Levitical law in Leviticus 19, where it says you should love your neighbor as yourself. And now all of a sudden... This man begins to be arrested by the Lord Jesus Christ right about this time because the Lord turns and says, thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Now, some people look at this passage and they say that Jesus was saying, if you do these things, you inherit eternal life. But we understand tonight that that's a wrong interpretation. What Jesus was saying is you can't do these things unless you're saved, unless you have a power outside of yourself in order to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do that in and of yourself. I can't do that in and of myself. You can't keep the law because we've all been shaped in iniquity and in sin did our mothers conceive us. And Jesus wasn't saying to do something in order to go to heaven. He's saying if you really want to go to heaven, accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And by accepting him, you can have the supernatural ability to do that which you cannot do in and of yourself and of your sinful man in your natural man and love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to this next question that this lawyer poses in verse 29. But he, notice, willing to justify himself. I stop there and I go, okay, who's accusing him? Why did he feel the need to justify himself? Who told you, sir, that you were wrong? I'll tell you who told him he was wrong, his own conviction. He understood that the Lord Jesus Christ was onto something here and he asks him, who is my neighbor? One author said this, the the lawyer's question was really an attempt to create a distinction, arguing that people, some people, I'm sorry, that some people are neighbors and others are not, and that one's responsibility is only to love God's people. He quoted Leviticus 19, verse 18, love thy neighbor as thyself, and by the end of this story, he's saying, well, Jesus, he's saying, he's saying, who's going to love on me, Jesus? Who's, who's my neighbor, Who's going to treat me right? Who's going to take care of me? Who's my neighbor? And I want you to notice that by the end of this story, Jesus turns that question on him at verse 36. Look at verse 36 of our text. He says, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? I don't want you to miss this. This man's question was posed in such a way that he tried to stump Jesus. He tried to confuse Jesus. And his question was this, who is my neighbor? But Jesus, by the end of the story, turned it around and said, listen, buddy, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not who is my neighbor, but the question is whose neighbor are you? The question is not who is going to take care of you. The question is who are you taking care of? The question is not who's going to love on me, who's going to carry my burdens. The question is, no, who are you loving on? Whose burdens are you going to carry? The question is not who's going to look out for you. The question is who are you looking out for? But you see, this man was caught up on his pride. He knew a lot about the scripture. He knew a lot about his religiosity and the system of religion. He was caught up on his pride. He was selfish. He was full of himself. He was a man that thought he was smarter than Almighty God in the form of the Son of Jesus Christ. And because he was looking at somebody else to take care of him, He missed the fact that God wanted him to take care of somebody else. And wondering tonight 
us being gathered here at Eastland Baptist Church, I believe one of the best churches in all of America. There's many of us here gathered tonight as a church family, young, old, everything in between, filled with people on a Sunday night who've been in church for a while. We know the scripture. We know the truths of God. Listen, no doubt most of us in this room tonight, we're familiar with biblical things. Maybe you've sung in the choir. Maybe you have quoted scripture and memorized scripture in a WANA program like ours or in ours. You've read through the Bible, perhaps. You've been around the things of God. You may be able to quote more of the Bible than most people in this corrupt world. You know the truth. You know what's right. You know what God has done. You've seen God's hand move. You've seen him move. And yet week after week and month after month, and yea, may I say, year after year, we come to church service after church service And some people come here tonight and wonder, who's going to look out for me? Who's going to serve me? Who cares about me? Who's going to show compassion on me? But let me help you out tonight. Jesus is saying, it's about time you and I stop asking, who is my neighbor? And we start asking, whose neighbor am I? Look, there's no doubt in my mind, you've heard messages about staying pure in this impure world. You've been under preaching where the preacher exhorts you, get back to serving God like you once did. You've heard messages about your need to quit backsliding and to stop drifting in your spiritual apathy and you need to have a passion for the things that God has a passion for. You've heard our pastor preach on getting your thought life in a healthy, God-honoring place. You've heard messages preached on the importance of your friends and how they influence you and how they shape you and how you ought to hang out with the right people. And all those things are important to God and all those things ought to be important to us. But I want to say this tonight. That it's about time where we got some saved, born-again believers of Jesus Christ who are not just interested in getting help for themselves, but are interested in helping somebody else. Because listen, I'd be the first to admit, I've been at this long enough to stop coming to church looking for attention. And yet there's Christians who've been saved 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 plus years that come to church looking for somebody to give them attention, rather than to turn the attention on somebody else and God. We've lived long enough to live a clean life, holy before the Lord, to live an honest life, to walk with God, to serve God, to fear God. We can't get much out of a church service after church service after church service if you're still listening to that foul music that you're pumping in your head that's changing and altering your thinking or those cuss words that are coming out of your mouth, or those bad habits that you can't overcome. Can I just ask you, what's one more sermon going to do? If you come service after service, hear sermon after sermon, message preached after message preached, and nothing changes. But it's about time that you've been saved long enough to where you ought to help somebody else get rid of the foul music in their mind and in their hearts. You ought to help somebody else get the the wrong language from stopping to come out of their mouth and help somebody else overcome their bad habits. You've been saved long enough to do that. And yet so many Christians in our world today are me-centric and focused on themselves and saying, well, who cares about me? I'm asking you tonight, who do you care for? Who's going to write me a thank you note? Who's going to recognize me publicly? Who's going to shake my hand? Who's going to come up and talk to me? Who's going to carry my burdens? You and I have been in this way too long. We ought to be calling somebody else. We ought to be reaching out to somebody else, loving on other people. It's not who's my neighbor. No, it's whose neighbor are you? And tonight I want to simply pose this question. Who cares? Who cares? It's a play on words. Because I believe there's so many Christians today who would just simply say, who cares? 
They see a need. They see a sister struggling. They see a brother struggling. They go out to a lost and dying world and see people on their way to a devil's hell and they say, who cares? Who cares? But what God is saying, you ought to say, who cares? Who cares? Is there anybody here who cares tonight? Oh, Brother Andrew, I care. Of course I care. I mean, I, 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 I'm burdened. I'm asking you to be honest tonight. Who cares about that brother in our church family who's struggling? Who cares, about, who cares about that sister in our congregation that's been carrying that burden for a long time? Who cares about that married couple who's staying married because they want to honor God's uh, covenant of marriage, but they're not happy being married? And they're carrying some burdens and their kids see that mom and dad are not happy. They're not happily married and it's affecting the kids. Who's going to have some compassion on that, on that couple? Who cares about the couple that's unhappily married? Who cares about those kids in the nursery? Who cares about the kids in the preschool wing? Who cares about the kids in elementary classes, the youth, the next generation? Who cares about that lost person at their job? Who cares about that little boy who's never heard the gospel, never had a dad, never had somebody to raise him upright, show him the ways of God? Who cares? Who cares? Can I ask you tonight, who are you caring for? Who's here tonight because you lifted them up in prayer? Whose spiritual nourishment is dependent upon whether or not tomorrow morning you get up and serve God? Who's looking to you for spiritual direction? Who's leaning on you for godly encouragement? Who's leaning on you? Whose neighbor are you? Whose life are you going to show up in? Well, I'm too good for them. They, they're beneath me. They're younger than me. They don't know as much as me. Excuse me, ma'am. Excuse me, sir. That's not the kind of compassion and Christ-likeness that we're called to exhibit in our lives. Whose burden are you going to carry? Whose neighbor are you? I noticed several things from this story tonight, and I must hasten. I see a critical impasse. You see, there's a problem here. This man, the Bible tells us, he fell among thieves, and so he's been, uh, having, uh, he's been beat up. He's had things stolen from him. He's been stripped of his clothing. He's suffering. He's, he's laying there half dead. No help, no hope. Nobody there with him. He's struggling. He's just trying to get from one place to the next. And on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, which would have been a very treacherous road, and as Jesus told this parable, his hearers would have understood this is a place that was, uh, would present vulnerability and would present maybe an issue like this because thieves and robbers, they'd hide in caves and they'd take advantage of people that went on the way that were by themselves and looked vulnerable. And so they would have understood that in their minds. And as Jesus told this story, it would have been very real, would have been very relatable. And here's this man on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho and his belongings were stolen and he was stripped of his clothing and he was suffering and he was he was in solitary, a solitude, and he was struggling. And don't you know that that describes our world? We live in a world full of people who the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy any good thing in their life. And I'll tell you what's wrong with the average 21st century American today. The devil has stolen them. He's stolen their purity. He's stolen their potential. He's stolen their minds. He's stolen their hearts. Don't you see it? Don't you see the generation coming up that the devil is busy? That's what you're looking at when you go to the mall. That's what you look at when you turn on the television. That's what you're looking at when you scroll through social media. Has anybody else seen it? Our generation, there's children and young people who are being stripped of their innocence and it breaks my heart. This man was suffering. He was wounded and people all over our world today, may I say people even in our church today, are wounded. Wounded by depression. Wounded by anxiety. Wounded by impurity, wounded by all sorts of addictions, ruined by, ruined by foul music, ruined by pornography, ruined by, hey, this is a big one, apathy. 
They have no drive. They have no direction. They have no priorities. I just come to church because I'm supposed to come to church, but I don't really want to be at church because I'm on my phone the whole time anyways. And there's no, there's no enthusiasm for the things of God. They spend more time on a video game than they do in God's word. Why? Because they've been lied to by the devil himself. He's a punk and he's stolen their goodness. He stripped them naked and they're lying there half dead. And you know what's even more heartbreaking to me is those people who are lying there half dead, half the time they don't even realize it because their heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. They don't even know the depravity and the situation that they're in. And everybody's looking on and they're saying, man, he's in a rough situation. Man, she's really going through it. But who cares? Who cares enough to not just point out the situation and the problem, but to go and do something about it? There's a critical impasse here. But then I also notice a careless indifference. There he is. He's alone. There's no help. There's no hope. He's just lying there. Here comes the priest. He's a religious man. Surely he'll do something about it. Verse 31. When he saw him, notice he passed by on the other side. (laughs) Here's what the priest did. Here's the man lying. He sees him and he avoids him. He sees him. He sees the issue. I'm not going to deal with that mess. Hey, how many Christians today do we have that see the problems that your brother or your sister is carrying and they go, whoo, not my problem. Not going to deal with that. You may be a religious person. You You may know the law. You may know the scriptures. You may have memorized the scriptures as a young man, as a young lady. But when you see that your brother or your sister's hurting and they're lying there half dead and you do nothing about it, Jesus is using an example of that to say that's not what you're supposed to do. And how many Christians today just avoid helping their brother and sister in Christ? I see in verse 32, a Levite. You'd think he would help, but he's calloused. He's apathetic. Notice when he was at the place, verse 32, came and looked on him and passed on the other side. So here's the Levite. Here he comes. Rather than seeing him and avoiding him, he comes up. The Bible says he gets right to the spot. Goes right up to him. Man, that poor thing. And then he passes by on the other side. He gets up close. (laughs) You know what? This is a problem. There's a lot of Christians who get real nosy and want to know what's going on with that sister or what's going on with that brother, but they're too lazy to do anything to help them. There's a lot of Christians. Did you hear what so-and-so said? Did you hear what they're going through? Did you hear about this? And then they won't do anything about it. You're, You're being exactly like the Levite. You don't have enough compassion. You don't have enough heart to actually walk up and do something. But can I ask you this morning, who have you walked up on lately? You know what that means? He, he saw his wounds. He saw his garments were torn. He saw he was stripped. He saw he could die. And yet his attitude was, doesn't bother me. Who cares? Watch this. I'm not going to mess with that. That's not for me. If I help him, I might get my clothes dirty. If I help him, I might have to take time out of my busy schedule. If I help him, I might need to inconvenience myself. If I help him, hey, I might have to spend some of my money. Hey, if I help him, I might have to go out of my way. I might have to get out of my comfort zone. I don't mind donating a little bit and letting them deal with it, but I'm not going to deal with it. Who cares? Who walks up on a half-dead man and does nothing? I'll tell you who does. A lot of us Christians do. Sometimes we do nothing. Critical impasse. We saw these two men had a careless indifference, but then I... (laughs) Thank God for the committed involvement. Verse 33, a certain Samaritan. You know who the Samaritans are. They were half-breed Jews that the Jews despised. They saw them as half-breeds. They disdained them. I believe the Bible would say, and Bible scholars would concur, that Jesus' parable 
This man that was lying half dead was a Jew that was traveling that day. Jews didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like Jews. And yet riding beside, riding near, riding and observing that half dead Jew was a Samaritan. And tonight, I think you and I better learn how to help people even when the people that we're called to help don't like us. You and I better learn how to help people even when the people that we're helping don't like us, don't approve of us. Why should I help them? They talk about me behind my back. Why should I help them? They're rude to me. Why should I help them? They hurt me. Why should I help them? They said this. They said that. Why should I help them? Why should I give them the gospel? They mock my Christianity all the time. Why should I care about them? They don't care about me. Look, church, we don't care about them because they care about us. We care about them because God cares about us. And you love them because Jesus loves you and you give them something because he gave you everything. And the truth of the matter is, if you don't like somebody that's unlike you, you better be grateful that God looked beyond your faults and saw your need and he rescued you from where you were when you were a stranger and a foreigner, a pilgrim outside of the commonwealth of the grace of God and he delivered you from a devil's hell. Let's not forget We all need some folks that would be surprisingly helpful like this Samaritan and like Jesus was all the time. We need some Christians with a genuine concern for others and not just certain others, but all others. I want you to notice he went to where he was. May God help us to stop being so stuck up as Christians that we don't go to where they are. Andrew, you're being really harsh tonight. No, I'm sorry. I just believe this is the Word of God, and we ought to get passionate about it. You're, you're saying that I, I wouldn't have compassion on somebody, that I don't go looking for sinners? Yeah, I'm saying you probably don't go look for sinners as best you could or as much as you should, because when sinners walk into our church, what do we do? Hey, we don't even walk across to the next section when a sinner walks in. I have a hard time believing that if you can't walk to the next section when a sinner comes in, that you're going to go across the street and reach a sinner. And oftentimes when a sinner comes in the room, we just look at them and go, oh, Lord, have mercy. We're like the Levite, poor thing, go on the other side. We're like the priest, I'm just going to avoid that, not going to even say hello. My friend, if you won't walk across the next section, are you walking across the street? What happens when a sinner walks into our church, when they look different, when they smell different? What happens when in the middle of a Sunday school class, you notice her arms are all cut up? Well, you start playing telephone in the row, like, did you see her arms? Do you see her arms? Do you see her tattoos? Do you see her piercings? Do you see what she... I'm afraid a lot of us are guilty of that. And can I just say tonight, we don't need any more commentators. You are not a journalist. You are not a newscaster. It's time that God's people stop critiquing the preacher and people. Stop critiquing, stop commenting on everything, and actually put their hands out and do something about it and be a help. There's too many Christians who are critiquing, judging, not doing anything. Well, I do do things. Well, you're doing things and you're doing that, and so it's a wrong heart. God can't bless that. If we're not careful, we will surmise that because someone's half dead, they're destined to be dead. Listen to this. He smells too much like weed, so I'm not going to even share the gospel with him because he's not going to listen to what I have to say. Now, you may not say that, but if you think that and you don't do it, your actions prove that that's what you're saying in your heart. Or how about this? She's got that hood over her head, and she's Islamic, she's Muslim, and so she's destined to just... Follow where that leads her. (laughs) Might as well not give her a track. For real? I'm sorry, sir. I didn't realize that you stood in the place of God. What are we doing? We need to care. 
I love this, that Jesus ends the passage. He ends the passage with a clear instruction. Go and do that likewise. Have you loved anybody lately? Have you silenced the critics? That's what a truly caring Christian does. Jesus says, go and do that likewise. You understand what the law does. The law is all about us. Who's going to take care of me? Jesus says, it's not who's going to take care of you. It's who are you going to take care of? You know what it takes, or I'm sorry, you know what makes you get up every morning and keep serving the Lord is when you start having people in your life that are dependent upon you for that spiritual nourishment. When you go, you know, if I quit going to church, oh my word, what are they going to say? What are they, what are they going to do? That ministry is going to have a hole there. If I stop sending the daily scripture to my friend group, what are they going to think? I don't feel like sending them the Bible. They ought to read the Bible on their own. You see, you know why some of you take a pass from serving God so easily? Because nobody's depending on you. It doesn't matter if you show up. It doesn't matter if nobody's going to be there. Because you're not all in. You're not committed. Who cares? Join a ministry so that, something, so that this church means something to you. Invest in it. Do something. Sing in the choir so that when you're gone and you watch the service online, you see your vacant spot. Pour into somebody. Disciple somebody. Love on somebody. Speak up about Jesus. Here's what's happened with 21st century American Christianity today. We've set the bar really low for ourselves. And it's time we raise the bar like God and Jesus and his word did. We've got to raise the bar. I'll say it with a smile. This church is not about just caring for you. This church is not just about wrapping you up and taking care of all your issues, although I hope that that happens, and I think it will happen if you stay very long, but this church is also about you taking care of others' issues as well. And yea, beyond the walls of this church, how about our community? How about our city? How about our world? The question, Jesus says, is not who's my neighbor. The question, on the contrary, is whose neighbor are you? So tonight, I ask you, who cares? Let's do business with that. Do I care? Do I really care?